Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. It's a truth universally acknowledged that any man in possession of a boat with a 70 horsepower engine will frequently be tempted to travel further out to sea than is good for him. This assertion is the result of my experiences over the four summers that I tried unsuccessfully to reach the Scared Rocks, Nishkerdi, located south of Roundstone and northwest of the Aran Islands. At every attempt, despite setting out in calm conditions, before I was halfway there, I found myself being tossed around by rolling seas and experienced the alarming sensation of seeing the horizon disappear behind the crests of large waves, something for which my level two powerboat course in Dunleary Harbour had not prepared me. On four successive summers, I was forced to admit that 70 horsepower or not, a far more attractive plan would be to turn 180 degrees, head for Randstone and order a bowl of chowder in O'Dowd's pub. I could always try again next summer. Viewed from the reassuringly firm land of Inishnee, some 10 miles north, the hump-backed shape of the collection of rocks known as Nishkerdi gives them the appearance of seven or eight giant sea creatures relaxing on the surface of the ocean. In poor weather, they disappear sometimes for days, but then magically reappear as if harbingers of better times. Little wonder that many believe them to be enchanted. Roderick O'Flaherty, writing towards the end of the 17th century, believed they shared the same magical nature as nearby High Brazil. These rocks sometimes appear to be a great city far off, full of houses, castles, towers and chimneys. Seamus Mokanyumara wrote of them in the shores of Connemara that it's many the look they have when a change in the weather is on the way, but I think myself that they're under a spell. Master McSivna, a teacher in Ballycanely, writing in 1938, gives an account of how every 70 years a beautiful city arises from these rocks. There are people still alive in the area who say they saw the city themselves once, early in the morning, at sunrise, windows sparkling, fine big houses and fine bridges. He tells how a resident of this magic city gave a book containing cures for every illness in the world to a doctor as a reward for saving his daughter's life. He stipulated that it was not to be opened until one year had passed. Regrettably, the doctor's wife peeked at the book after only six months, so the poor doctor only ever acquired half the knowledge he was promised. From Inishnee, Nishkerdi seemed to form a straight line that acts as a natural warning barrier in the sea, beyond which one could easily imagine ancient maps noting, here be monsters. I was determined to get there. All I needed was the right day. This summer, with its record-breaking stretch of settled weather, the right day finally came. On a sunny morning, towards the end of June, with a flat calm sea, I headed out at full throttle past Inishlaken and Hard Island. Above me, a blue sky, scarred by jet trails and mare's tails. Behind me, in all their glory, Cashel Hill and the Twelve Bends. Just after Deer Island, however, that familiar roll began to set in, and I feared 
I might once again be shortly ordering a chowder. But the sea remained manageable, and I made the remainder of the trip at a cautious five knots. Deneen's dictionary tells me that scared is an onomatopoeic word that connotes a bleak place, wild appearance. Then, just for good measure, as he frequently does, he throws in an additional, seemingly unrelated meaning, dismay. But all of this could not be more apt, for what seems from a distance, like a straight line of very large rocks placed neatly in the sea, turns out to be rather different the closer you get. By the time you arrive at the easternmost rock, Dulik, you have realised that Nishkerdi are in fact a chaotic archipelago of rocks, barren islands and treacherous breakers where water churns and foams menacingly even on the finest of summer days. Shkerd Moor and Shkerd Bjug, the main rocks, rise abruptly out of the sea to a height of perhaps 60 feet. My satnav warned that straight ahead lay Dungudl Rock, familiar to me as the spot where a Spanish trawler ran aground on a stormy night in October of 2000 with the loss of all but one of the 13 crew. Beyond Dungudl lies Newfoundland. I put the engine into neutral. Dismay seemed an entirely appropriate reaction to finding myself alone at this bleak and lonely spot. It appeared neither magical nor enchanting. But we should never lose faith in magic. A week later, as Connemara baked in the heat, I was in Dog's Bay when I noticed unfamiliar structures on the shimmering horizon to the south where Nishkirdi should have been. Enormous, multi-storied buildings worthy of the New York skyline seemed to have appeared overnight. It took me a few minutes to realise that I was witnessing the astounding miracle. The Shkerdi had transformed into Roderick O'Flaherty's great city, the beautiful city of Master McSivena from Valley Keneally. I looked hard, but try as I might, I couldn't make out any of their sparkling windows or castles or chimneys. But I'll try again next summer. in early autumn some people begin to replan the future the map of the self is laid out and scrutinised in night schools at universities and at the arts centres which speckle the country like small creative pulses courses begin to fill up hope and determination sharpen and change seems possible in autumn 1979 I too wanted change to start again to fight back against what I saw as a disaster. I was in a state of inner desperation, an open wound of indignation. I'd just failed a major exam and my days were filled with what I saw as looming disgrace and a botched career. Now I had a life to restore. 
I would be a writer and take further the scribblings and poems I'd been preoccupied with since leaving school. Yeats's poem, A Wishes for the Cloths of Heaven, buoyed me along, capturing my sense of longing for the visionary. Cloths embroidered with golden and silver light were ephemeral presences that accompanied me and in their way brought me to the Brazen Head pub in Dublin for my first ever writer's workshop. We were a group of ten strangers given a room of our own behind the bar. Every week we spent a few hours reading our work aloud to one another. There were no photocopies, you just listened. Everybody was in agreement that everything read aloud was good or quite good or had possibilities. Afterwards, we'd push back our chairs in the linoleumed nicotine brown back room and enter the bar for a drink. A fat brown dog slumbered on the cracked leather bench below the window. A few locals supped pints and smoked and we writers chatted shyly. The place was warm and welcoming. I felt completely at home. Afterwards, I'd catch the late number 66 bus back home to Maynooth and as the bus charged through the wet darkness of Palmerstown, Lucan, Leakslip, I'd turn over what had happened and what I'd heard. Looking back, everything seemed sepia-tinged, even the quality of our discussions. There was no criticism, so much as an unspoken gentleman's and ladies' agreement that perhaps we weren't quite ready for robust frankness. I often think of that first workshop, how useless it was in addressing anything of practical help to me, an apprentice writer, and yet how it mattered, and the hope that sprang from simply being allowed to read my work aloud to a gathering of benign, optimistic strangers. There was none of the savaging that later developed in certain notorious workshops I heard about, when frankness melted into insult and the occasional physical throttling of a mentor. In the brazen head, we found a sprinkling of courage that made some of us continue to write. It's one of those anomalies that many who emerge from school and university versed in the textual analysis of Mahon, Boland, Rich or Heaney have little sense of how to lift the lid on their own creative well. Perhaps an instinct about the sacredness of the self is what prevents people criticising one another's work in a useful way, rather than cowardice. There's a recognition that within the deepest crevices of each personality, in a little repository of vision, lies material so invested with powerful emotion, and especially with memory, that we fear to tread on that ground, especially when it belongs to another. Workshops have evolved from soft and cushiony beginnings to a complex form which, thanks to the influence of the major US university writing courses, at the very least turns participants into better readers, both of their own work and that of others. In Ireland, the apprentice writers of my generation benefited in told and untold ways from the presence of particular workshop facilitators, among them Eugene McCabe, John McGahern and Ivan Boland. 
As an active writer mentor myself, I believe in the world of unconscious flow that drives writers into groups where they can test their secret dreams, ideas and thoughts. Every autumn brings new writers like ripening fruits seeking workshops. They come without fear and with a new openness that didn't exist when I was young. They are better versed in the language of criticism and more aware of the role of the visionary and how to recognise the visionary within their ordinary yet wonderfully diverse lives. But occasionally, my mind revisits the balmy temperatures of that first critically inept workshop on those autumn evenings of 1979, when my life had disappointed me and when the brazen head offered solace and welcome. I'm reminded of how wonderful a thing it is to land in a safe place, to find asylum, to have woven those blue and dim and dark cloths of Yeatsian vision, to have spread a few dreams one way or another, side by side with my fellow poets. In October 1972, I returned from my second year to UCD to find the Belfield Arts Block filled with new first-year students trying to find their way about. Making my way through this excited crowd, I met a friend coming the other way. Come with me, she said. And so I followed her into Theatre L, that huge amphitheatre lecture hall crowded with expectant first-year students for their first lecture in English. The lecturer, a lanky figure with a shock of black hair in priestly garb, came and took his place on the podium. A hush descended on the packed hall. Good morning, students. I'm Father Michael Paul Gallagher, and these lectures will be on practical criticism. But that's not Michael Paul Gallagher, I whispered to my companion. She put her finger to her lips and motioned for me to listen on. Ah, yes, he continued, practical criticism. I recall a student who went to Professor Donoghue saying, I have practically criticised this poem. Yes, he replied, practically, but not quite. But at the end of this course, you will gain new insights into poetry, new visions and understanding. You will look at a poem like Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and you will see this not as a nursery rhyme, but as an existentialist exploration of the situation of modern man fallen from grace and searching for meaning in an absurd world. Who are you? said a bearded clerical figure who now arrived at the podium. I'm Father Michael Paul Gallagher, the lecturer replied. No, I'm Father Michael Paul Gallagher. 
Right, uh, sorry, the imposter cried, and off he ran to the cheers and groans of the first-year students. We caught up with him outside. He was flushed and excited from his act, and keen to know how we thought it had gone. This was my first encounter with Dermot Morgan, second-year student and all-around funny guy. We became good friends, and as we were both doing English, we saw a lot of each other. I was thoroughly entertained by him on every meeting, for he never stopped performing, whether on stage or with company. His energy was manic, and his comments hilarious and apt. He was liable to turn up anywhere and everywhere in the guise of his latest character. He even showed up at the Tramps Ball in the restaurant building, fronting a band called Big Gom and the Imbeciles. But he had to give that up, he told me, as people were taking it too seriously and missing the satire, wanting to book the group for dances, while all he wanted to do was poke fun at the country music scene with songs like Casablaney Blues, I Walk Black Line or Be Nobody's Darling But Wine. After college, we drifted apart, but I followed his comedy career through his letters to the early morning Mike Murphy radio show and on to the live Mike on television, where Father Brian Trendy, his next priestly incarnation, appeared. This was an altogether smoother priestly character, well-groomed in his leather jacket, smiling at the camera. He advised us to be like the Irish soccer team and pick divine, or act as a fishing rod for God to catch a soul and fill it with love. But again... There was the danger that his bite-sized pieces of religion might be taken for real. And my mother, for one, loved his little sermons. His next incarnation was as the growling, irritated voice of Charlie Hockey in his own radio show Scrap Saturday with Jerry Stenbridge. This was full of cutting impersonation and biting political satire that to me represents the height of his career. Maybe it was too close to the bone, as after a few seasons, Scrap Saturday was scrapped. He went on to play his third and most famous priestly role, Father Ted, and gain international fame. Father Ted Crilly dreams of bigger things than the dead-end wilderness of Craggy Island, a parish to match his abilities, recognition, fame and fortune, but everywhere his projects crumble under the reality of the people he is surrounded by. It was a wonderful farce, extremely well written and well acted by a fantastic cast, but I kept thinking that for all its quality, Dermot Morgan had so much comic ability underused in the series. The last time I met him was in Kilkenny, when he was on a solo tour called Black Magic. He'd been in the news recently, having appeared in court and been fined for speeding through Mount Rath in County Leash. His comment to the audience on this was as acerbic as ever. Did you ever see Mount Rath? He thundered. Fifty miles is too bloody slow to go through the place. We met and talked after the show, but he had to return to Dublin early and promised a real UCD reunion at a future time. That reunion never happened, and he died at the height of his fame, playing the vainglorious Father Ted. 
Dermot never lost the manic energy and enthusiasm he showed in Belfield, where he constantly had us in fits of laughter with his antics. While the world got to know him and love him as the farcical Father Ted, it was in UCD, in front of those bemused and bewildered first years, that he played the first of those oddball priests that were to bring him so much fame. Pleasant beasts roam through the streets and coffee shops. Their prey gather in herds, the stiff kneeling skirts and white ankle socks. But while they search for a mate, my type hibernate in bedrooms above. My grandson Rory has started play school. His bottom lip quivers and his china blue eyes darken with unshed tears when I ask him about it. I am not going to cry there, he tells me. And after a pause of considerate reflection, he adds, I am not going to scream or yell either. His determination to be brave catapults me back to a time I had to be brave too. When I passed the 11 plus exam and left the safe harbour of childhood. That year, I was the only one from my little country school to make the long journey by bus from Belique to Inniskillen to secondary school. I had never been to Inniskillen. On my first day, with only the advice from my mother to follow the girls wearing the same uniform as me when I got off the bus, I set off, feeling as though I were on a tightrope high above the ground with no safety net. Inniskillen was as vast and confusing to me then as I imagine O'Connell Street at Rush Hour would be to my grandson Rory now. I remember little about the first days and weeks other than walking from bus to school and school to bus in a fluttering blur of anxiety. In school, I was like a mouse trying to avoid getting stepped on. In this alien world, everyone but me seemed connected to everyone else. Then, one evening in the crowded streets on my way to the bus, I somehow became hopelessly lost. I think it was Philip Roth who said we forget some things, not because they don't matter, but because they matter too much. Maybe this is why I have no memory of how long I ran around the streets in blind panic. But I do remember eventually stumbling by chance into the bus station, which was eerily deserted. Helpless and scared, I sat on a bench and cried and cried. After what seemed like a lifetime, a bus driver in uniform came and spoke kindly to me. What a sight I must have been, a scrawny, blubbering, terrified 11-year-old in a uniform several sizes too big and black, clumpy lace-up shoes. My terror rose again when the driver disappeared for a few minutes, but when he returned he was jangling keys in his hand and whistling. He brought me across to a familiar yellow school bus which he unlocked. 
I got in. With its rows of shadowed empty seats, it felt enormous. The road from Inniskillen to Bleak is a long and lonely one, clinging to the shores of Loch Garen. Usually the bus journey was slow, filling up with us children in the tribal colours of our respective school uniforms. This bus, however, swerved its speed around the hairpin bends. It felt like being on the merry-go-round in Bundorn. I was so tired and so hungry. I must have started crying again, as through a haze I heard words of reassurance coming over the empty seats to me from the driver. He left me at the top of the winding lane to my home. By the time I reached the house, he'd already turned the bus and was speeding his way back up that long, dark road to Inniskillen. I doubt if my parents ever found a way to thank that driver. I know I never did. None of us fully realise the ripples we create in the lives of others. Circles of influence that may affect others for years and even generations. That kind, decent bus driver didn't just provide me with a safety net on that day. He instilled in me a lifelong confidence in the goodness of people. New beginnings can be wobbly no matter what age you are, and few lives move in smooth lines. But there are people everywhere like that bus driver. He seemed old to me then. I hope he lived a long and happy life, and I hope that he is still remembered most of all as being kind. When you're weary Feeling small When tears are in Your eyes I will dry them all I'm on your side I'm at Raka Kahamit drapa haran shahan tilta chenig na faringa chunan trag of wintermach. Tommy down con aimed raka avalu. Ta ganza agafaging in yov don hear la fada marthan chort titaha agastirameg bagart. Neowan shin achtan grian le velach tev hear dan eskamel. Tigim nach rakig meks naver rish gakian bliena. Fearham a mach herna tauntracha. On art ir gul to show glown and harren. Agus quinim sheer erna lehanta eme lunasa. In our foods clear me or shianta na deska. Nor a snav me savro. Agus diriglum elu arash gotir ma oiga. Driftwood. We have to climb over the stream that is flooding after the rain to reach the strand. We're there to gather driftwood. We're wearing jumpers today for the first time in a long while because the temperature has fallen and a storm is threatening. Not only that, but the sun is hidden behind the clouds. I know I won't go swimming again for another year. 
I look out over the waves from this remote place, Glencarn, and I remember the days in the month of August when I was released from the chains of the desk and I swam in the surf and I escaped back to the land of my youth. Level Crossings, in memory of Michael Melvin. Dodging between Deliveroo, Just Eat, Amazon Prime. Is it any wonder the cyclist heads against the traffic flow? Or is there something else entirely that's going on, post-lockdown, in the Putin Mire? As the morning sun encompasses our singular undaunted tree, the old stone walls consoling mortar, the curtains billowing out like a cloud. I bet someone's nodding off under the family clock, and before I know it, I'm on my way via Manila Junction, through Bogland, sparkling lake, gorse, isolated farm, all suddenly lit up, on and on and on, to the terminus of the long ago, train hoots approaching level crossings, the rocking carriage full of folk heading back home. On this morning's mix of new and recent archive recordings, we heard Nishkirdi, The Great City Far Off by Connell Hamill. The Cloths of Heaven was by Mary O'Donnell. Remembering Dermot Morgan by Fred, Fred Tuitt. The Kindness of a Stranger was by Olive Travers. Imid Rake, or Driftwood, a poem by Catherine Foley. And Level Crossings a poem by Gerald Daw. The music was Truscotirnanog by Miholo Sulevoin, Tread Softly by Joanna Hyde and Thiago Macher, Songs of Love by The Divine Comedy, Johnny Cash's version with Fiona Apple of Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Waters, and Lee O'Sheen, The Legend of O'Sheen by Cullum McInumere. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And a couple of books from more contributors you might be interested in. Catherine Foley's latest collection of poetry in English and Irish, Auron Sroid Valle, Village Song, has just been published by Arlen House. And Gerald Dawes' Another Time, Poems from 1978 to 2023, is published by the Gallery Press. You can find more from this and other arts and culture programmes at rte.ie forward slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's miscellany, go to the RTE radio player or the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.